to episode 323 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Andrew Swafford. Michael O'Malley. In today's episode, we'll be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we'll be concluding our Horror for Kids series with 2009's Coraline. Which honestly is a long time coming that we haven't, you know, talked about that movie on this podcast. Yeah, I mean, we've had this podcast running for six years now, and we haven't had an episode dedicated to one of my favorite movies. Uh, that's kind of crazy. You know, well, we're here now, so uh, there you we go. We made it. We made it. Um, let's go ahead and jump. This is the last episode of Cinematary, everyone. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. <laughs> just envision, like, yeah, just envision us, like, at the end of SNL, and we're all just waving at the camera, and that's it. Um, let's go ahead. Uh, actually, before we jump into part one, uh, I do want to direct people over to the website. We have a lot of uh, festival coverage, actually, that's been rearing up. We have, uh, the, we talked about it last week, but we had the London Film Festival dispatch from Logan and Joseph. Uh, on Monday, we're going to have a, uh, a rundown of the Knoxville Horror Film Festival uh, from Andrew and Jessica. And then we, uh, we of course, I mean, had the TIFF coverage that I did. So uh, if you're looking for some festival stuff, Cinematary has got you covered. So, and if you're looking for some horror fun, uh, we got a new film theory in Chill that is Horror Edition for October. Uh, it's on the Patreon page. Uh, if you would like to support the podcast, support the website, and support our writers, you know, consider becoming a patron. So, patreon.com slash cinematary. But let's go ahead and jump into movies that we saw this week. I'm going to kick off with a new release. It just, uh, yeah, we're not going to get to that yet. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, okay. I thought I thought you were gonna go a different direction with that. I thought that was a joke. But anyways, go on. <laughs> Foreshadowing. Yeah. Foreshadowing. No, not yet. Um, no, this came out on Apple TV Plus because we all have streaming services now. Um, and that is uh, on the. Ro- Does anyone have Apple TV Plus though? Is that one that people have? I do not. I found this by other means. Um, <laughs> but like to go, I go into a friend's house who has Apple TV Plus. Wink. Hmm. Um, I thought this movie was a Netflix movie. I'm I'm disappointed to learn that yeah, it is on Apple TV Netflix. Plus. No. Yeah. No, it is. It. <laughs> well, actually, you know, not not to de- derail this, but like Wolf Walkers, the new Tom Moore. Mm-hmm. Um, that's gonna be gonna be on apple tv plus but no to answer your question nobody has this um no <laughs> so on the rocks it's the latest from sofia coppola uh who i'm sure people know from uh recently the beguiled but uh lost in translation somewhere um Marie antoinette Mary, yeah a lot of good godfather stuff Godfather three godfather three <laughs> that you know all the hits <laughs> Um, this one though reteams her with uh, with Bill Murray, who is in Lost in Translation, as well as that god awful Netflix um, Christmas special that they did for whatever reason. I I don't know whatever that was, but anyway. So this one it stars Bill Murray and Rashida Jones. Rashida Jones is a um, I guess all you need to know about her is that when you enter her apartment for the first time she has a bernie 2016 sticker on her door so and she lives in new york so there you gotta respect it you know um but she has two two kids uh her husband played by marlon wayans is kind of in and out he he has this uh we don't really get us it's some sort of like like marketing tech job i don't know but 
he's not really around. She is a is an author, but is kind of struggling with writer's block and um, kind of has a feeling that her husband's cheating on her, but really doesn't have any proof. And so she kind of uh, that that anxiety bubble is is kind of festered when Bill Murray, her her estranged father, shows up, who is kind of playing like this. Um, like height an old cad yeah well he's just playing like this like heightened version of what i assume people think bill murray is just kind of like in real life like i don't really feel like he's he's really this like vivacious all the time i think that he's just kind of doing a character but um but yeah he's just this he's kind of this like large you know this this playboy old school kind of almost like rockefeller like i got money and i'm just having fun you know white people and so uh and so he 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 kind of uh you know in an it's clearly an effort to cut you know hang out with his with his adult daughter but he decides to kind of um you know orchestrate a you know i kind of watching the husband and, and seeing what's happening and, and trying to you know glean info to to prove that he is in fact cheating on her um, and of course, you know, course, this, this, uh, this kind of comes to head because, um, he has, you know, bounced around to many different women. He cheated on, uh, Rashida Jones's character's mother, which is why he's, he isn't around as much as, you know, before. And so that's, that's kind of the basis of the movie. It's just people feeling out their, their, uh, their baggage. And, uh, I don't know. I don't really know what to do with this movie, but I'll answer your question. <laughs> Did you ever see? Um, did you ever see that Sofia Coppola, a very Murray Christmas special? That's what I was. That's what I was insinuating with the uh, the terrible Netflix Christmas thing. Oh, okay, okay. So you did see it or no? I think I did, but I can't tell you one thing that happened in it. Right. I mean, I'm kind of worried that that this movie is like that level of just kind of like a, a larkish vanity project like let's i just want to hang out with bill murray and shoot a thing um is is that kind of the vibe i don't think that that was like the initial going in i think there's a little bit of that and i get that he seems like a fun guy to hang out with but um there's a lot of different things that i that shouldn't that didn't sit with me i i like rashida jones i don't think she's a good actress though <laughs> i just like she's She's not bad here, but like, I don't know. I was trying. I was trying to think, and I was just like, "Yeah, you probably, you probably could have got someone else in this role." She, she's just kind of flat to me. She doesn't really have. I don't really know what her personality is, other than like, I'm kind of cool and hot, um, and I'm Quincy Jones's daughter. Um, that's a, that's a bit. And so I, I don't really know what to do with her, um, and. I, you know, I, again, like, like I, I get that the overall message is like you have this father who is estranged and he wants to get closer to his daughter and she's kind of dealing with this stuff and all of that anxiety and uncertainty opens up a kind of a window for her to, 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 to you know, let in this guy who pretty much is what she's trying to avoid with her husband, but just also her father. Um, but I don't like at the end of the at the end of the movie, I was just kind of going like, what what what's this really, you know? What am I supposed to get from this? It's 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 kind of it's mildly charming. It doesn't have any like 
show you know it's not like Marie Antoinette where you're just kind of overwhelmed with like how luscious and and you know be, you know that movie is or you're not as enthralled by like it kind of tries to do a little bit of the um the lost in translation where it just leaves you with conversations and you're supposed to kind of get enraptured in the conversations, but it really, there's nothing, at least in my opinion there in that respect. And so I don't know. It's just kind of a listless movie. You, you also just have like that. I mean, I don't, I like Sofia Coppola, but you know, she's also Sofia Coppola. So there's, there's a little bit of your mileage may vary on, um, you know, very wealthy, New Yorkers having problems, um, but I don't know. It, it, it's a, it's a strange movie because I don't I can't tell you what's necessarily wrong with it, but at the same time, it wasn't all. I was a little disappointed because I do like Sofia Coppola, and I remember I need to I need to rewatch The Beguiled. I remember being a little bit let down by that one, but I I, I remember a lot more about that than this one. I think you should. Um, have you seen Somewhere? I like Somewhere a lot. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is not that's a movie a that I feel like um, is really underrated and is a listless kind of um, almost a nothing of a movie because there's basically no plot in Somewhere. But it and it is also about like the the emotional lives of the very rich and famous. Um, but it ends up being like really emotionally resonant and and like quietly profound. Um and I think that Sofia Coppola is really good at doing that thing of of making stories or, or telling stories about these um, very privileged characters in a way that um, is kind of indulgent, but also, you know, somewhat uh, serious and thoughtful. Um, and this does just doesn't seem like it's doing that. Like, I just watched the trailer and was like that's what this movie is like that's all that's all it is um i love sofia coppola she's my favorite coppola um (laughs) i would i wish i wish i was excited about this no that's the thing is like i I was with you like because i like somewhere and and that's and that's why i say like she does she's she's handled like incredibly privileged characters well before i mean like lost in translation marie antoinette is literally about that it's the ultimate yeah Yeah, it's her best movie (laughs) somewhere you know like but this one it's it's never really engaging with that it's it's more engaging with like the father-daughter relationship it seems like and i I don't know i guess that that doesn't just there's not much which is strange because we all know who her father is she (laughs) has a very interesting father-daughter relationship Yeah. yeah so i don't know i don't know what to do with it i mean i'll probably watch it again at some point if i can find access to apple tv plus but that's honestly a good place for it because it'll just kind of disappear until like you know five years later and you'll be like oh remember that sofia coppola movie on apple tv plus and we're like yeah anyway let's go back to the factory or whatever we're doing <laughs> i think there's like going to be like an interesting like generation of like auteur like filmmaking projects that kind of get lost in the like just the noise of streaming like this movie or like, you know, different movies like that where, you know, Netflix or whoever has like signed on a high profile director to get like cachet. And then their, their project ends up being something that not everyone is super excited about. And so it kind of gets like, you know, semi obscure within its, um, you know, its directors thing. Like, I don't think like, for instance, I liked Okja for instance, but no one's talking about Okja. Um, you know, it's just there on Netflix, uh, and everyone's, you know, watching Parasite or, 
um, you know, the host or something instead. And I feel like the way you're describing this kind of feels like that as well as that, like, you know, there, there was like, basically this movie exists to give like a streaming service, uh, a high name or a high profile director rather than like to have a director give be able work. to do whatever they and, want. Yeah. 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 I mean, if we ever have like a post Netflix, film industry <laughs> there's some interesting excavating to be done of that i worry that we will never have a, a post um netflix or post streaming film industry and that this well, i think the real thing to worry about oh, sorry. Uh, just like the idea that, like this this chasm of like half remembered films is just going to get like wider and wider and wider to the point where you know we we never really get a chance to reassess I feel like there's a real risk of like there being a post, maybe not Netflix immediately, but like a lot of these services, you know, they're going to go under or get subsumed by larger corporations. And then what happens to the ownership of these properties? Like, I mean, this is a really minor example, but like Community's sixth season, like the TV show, it was on like the Yahoo streaming service, which I don't believe exists anymore. And I have no idea where to find that anymore. Yeah. So like what happens to the stuff you know, if a, if a streaming service... Especially since, like, uh, these these movies are not getting physical releases either, for the most right. part. Like, you can't buy Ava DuVernay's 13th or, you know, like, Cam is a, is a Netflix movie that I really liked. Um, but they're just not available. You just can't, you just can't own them. If a streaming service falls in a forest and no one watches, does, does it leave a <laughs> cultural impact? <laughs> Well, Quibi, we're seeing that with Quibi, right? Or Quibi, or however you say it right now. Like, all that stuff is just gone. No, but, you know, there were people who made stuff for it, and that stuff just going poof. Well, that's, you know, not to get us even more down the rabbit hole, but I saw something today about how Amazon Prime Video is, is, like, doesn't view, like, if you bought, like, if, Andrew, if you bought a movie for 20 bucks, on Amazon Prime oh, yeah, Video, you don't so it would actually be there. own it. You don't actually own it. So, te- so technically, you could like buy full price a movie on Amazon, but well, I I had to to watch First Cow when it came out. You had to buy it, and I guess I don't actually own it. You don't own the cow. You just get the milk. <laughs> you know, Andrew, you gotta. And I, no, I can't even get the milk for free. <laughs> if you go at night to like an Amazon warehouse, you can like start like slowly siphoning out like data from their servers until you finally have a whole first cow of your own <laughs> well speaking of you know movies that will live eternally let's shift to another <laughs> one <laughs> <laughs> and that is the it is not a new release but let's talk a little bit about the 2001 cinematic landmark um, trailblazer landmark is a good word too that is shrek um <laughs> so i watched this under a state um <laughs> but damn like so so, so my, my <laughs> so like my letterbox review was this is unrateable which is true like a part of it is one one part of it is i've seen pieces of this movie I can't even count how many times and and like it's it's on whether it's on cable whether it's like watching it on the little like car you know like car vehicle movie screens on like the back of the seats 
um like just just various ways of watching shrek and in, in the pieces and parts of shrek it was really nice that you actually uh, the other day to, to like watch it in full because i forgot like what the like what the the you know the the whole narrative uh path of shrek was because i was like i remember these you did watch it in full as a kid at some point right oh, i did yeah no i've seen i've seen it in full before but i was just like I, but and, and but also like the Shrek the Shrek universe is so vast that like I watched the second one <laughs> last night and I there was so many parts of it that I thought were in the first one that were not so like I think Shrek one and two are just like a I've just put those together, um, but honestly this is like quite honestly the the other thing that makes it so so um, unrateable is that. It's really a movie and just a let's just go go past movies and say a piece of media that is has like transcended the realm of just everything because Shrek is a meme now for so many various, you know, widely different degrees of satire. Um, I don't if satire just just kind of setting a mood, just like sending us into like some like dark realm. Like I've seen some like demented ass Shrek memes. <laughs> um, well, have you seen the um, Shrek Untold like recreation of it? No. Oh man. Are you familiar with this? Oh, okay. So there was oh, there Zach. was some like um, convention or something uh, several years back where they got a bunch of random internet creators. And each of them, I think, was tasked with um, filming um, like a minute of Shrek. Um, and so they all do it in different styles. Like some of them are in animation and some of them are in live action. And, and uh, they're all bonkers. But you watch the entirety of Shrek like jumping art forms every minute, I think. I've not seen it. That's, that's how it's been it's, described to me. I have seen it. And it is wild. And... Uh, really it varies wildly in quality like some of the stuff is literally like some dude put a horse head on you know with those like horse head masks on and his donkey and it's just walking around his backyard and then others are these like extremely elaborate like animated productions and it is really an experience and I, I feel like it like you're saying Zach like how Shrek has transcended its medium like this is the movie that encapsulates exactly the ways in which Shrek has transcended its medium because each person has a different relationship to like what Shrek is and a different interpretation of what that is. And it's like just giving you like this whiplash between different like visions of like what Shrek is and what Shrek means. Well, um, well first off, I have to see that because that sounds incredible. <laughs> Second off, there's also a Netflix version of the Shrek musical that I have a coworker, one of our patrons, by the way, who loves he, he, he says it's the best version of shrek um so maybe that's worth your time too They're all good versions of shrek i'll be honest the second thing <laughs> and this just gets into a it kind of gets into what michael was talking about but like you know i i understand that like you know over time like movies have um you know there's there's always been that kind of self-referential uh, aspect you know i mean you can look at like airplane even like the you know you can even go farther back with um you know even like the marx brothers are are commenting on stuff that's not actually within the realm of like the movie so that's this isn't that isn't new but there's something unique about like just the layers of 
outside media that are all penetrating Shrek at one at one period of time because you have first the soundtrack like the soundtrack is just littered with I won't even say popular songs but just like radio hits of like give or take two to three years from 2001 and then also just like stuff that I guarantee your parents have listened to if they have a really boring like musical taste and like the way that like that that just kind of you know is 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 placed on top of so then you have like the fairy tale you get like the fairy tale thing going you have like this this dissonance with like modern music like being played over it and and like really like informing your understanding of these pieces of music like i was joking before we we recorded but i'm being at the same time i'm being serious the first time i ever heard david bowie's changes was in shrek 2 um and so when i heard the david bowie version i was like oh it's the shrek song Um, (laughs) but at the same time like there's so many there's so many like the uh, like hallelujah i feel like is is pretty is pretty widely known from Shrek. Um, unfortunately, yeah. Unfortunately, I mean that's just that, that and that's just that's just what it is. Like this movie kicks off with Shrek opening the damn uh, outhouse and Smash Mouth's All Star just kicking off like a like fireworks. Um, there's a Bruce Springsteen quote about like um, like a Rolling Stone how like the snare drum at the beginning is like kicking open the door to your mind. I feel like that there's like an, <laughs> an analog to like when Shrek kicks open the door and Smash Mouth starts. Oh man! Yeah. So I don't know. It's it's like honestly, I think we're gonna just need a whole episode of Shrek, and it's gonna be honestly, it, like it might be. Yeah, we'll we'll find a way to. It work might need it in to be a long point. one because I think there needs to be like, all right, let's talk about the movie stuff or whatever for like twenty minutes, and then let's just talk about like everything around the movie because that's. Quite honestly, the most interesting part to me. Well, at least. Um, speaking of things around the movie, uh, since Nathan is not here to share this story, I will recount it for him. Um, he went to see a screening of Shrek, not not by uh, UT Cinema Club, but the UT Film Committee, the the competing cinema club at the time. Um, it was a complete, it was a completely packed house, and he said that the audience basically quoted the whole movie at the screen. Oh yeah, the whole time. I believe it. He said it was like the most surreal film experience of his life. Like, like, well, that's what. It, so, so rewatching the first Shrek again, like I've I'd seen pieces of it for so long. And, and, and it was, it was just like, it was, but like for me, it wasn't like quoting it back at the screen. It was just more like it was coming back into my memory after being suppressed or forgotten. Like I just started dying laughing at the, which honestly I'll just admit is a really funny scene with the gingerbread man and Lord Farquaad. Like that's a great scene. <laughs> so, um, it's just incredible. It's like this. It's just this piece. It's just this piece of media that's like embedded into, um, I would say, I would say like millennials. But I think it kind of has like a little like there's some Gen Z engages. Well, Gen Z, Gen Z people love oh my it gosh. too. Michael my and I have both talked flips to that. A dude. Um, when I, <laughs> I have had multiple experiences of introducing a shrek clip that i'm about to show them as part of like a fairy tale unit and the second i say the word shrek 
and they know we're about to start talking about Shrek, you you start to hear like a, a very faint chorus of All Star coming from different <laughs> corners of the room. <laughs> it just happens spontaneously. If you're in a room of Zoomers and you say Shrek, that happens. It's it's a magic spell. It's like Pavlov. Yeah, back the room. Somebody wants to all the- <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like a great. I was, I was say, say like, that sounds like a great horror movie where like, like you're haunted by like you just become overcome to sing All Star from Smash Mouth until you die. Oh god, it's like the Bye Bye yeah. Man, but with Shrek's All Star. <laughs> the Smash Mouth Man. I will say though, you know, um, the Zoomers are obsessed with it, but it is a a unique experience to remember watching it as a kid in theater yeah, as a movie um like i i vividly remember this experience i was what year did this movie come out okay i was nine when this movie came out and i remember um leaving the theater and my mom being mad like i i had never i had never seen my mom get angry at a movie before mom did that because too. she was just so furious at how inappropriate that movie was for kids i didn't get i got nothing like i none of the jokes landed for me or none of the the jokes my mom was upset about landed for me but she was just so appalled that the film industry would would corrupt children in this way (laughs) well it also you know on like an industry level it kind of kicked off or maybe it didn't kick off maybe i'm wrong but like the, this this model of like movie, especially with for DreamWorks, um, it seemed like that kind of set it off because, I mean, you have even even something that I feel like as recent as something like Trolls kind of feel it feels like akin or, or it owes a lot to Shrek. Well, I mean, uh, one of the one of the directors of Shrek Two is also one of the many directors of Nomeo and Juliet. Yeah, you know, I think that that's the lineage of these movies, yeah, right? So um, I will say too that like one of the most interesting things about the movie is like its relationship to like the film industry. Cause like, like DreamWorks um, was like in the shadow of like Disney and Pixar until this movie. Right. And like this movie launches it off. And this movie is like, like a total middle finger to Disney because um, uh, what was his name? Jeffrey Katzenberger, who was like next in line to become like, you know, the anointed like son of, like the Disney, you know, studios, uh, was booted out of Disney and, and Michael, when Michael Eisner took over. Right. And so he got so mad at Michael Eisner that he like went to DreamWorks and like made this movie in which like Lord Farquaad resembles Michael Eisner. And like, I don't know, like there's a parody of Disney world in the movie. Yeah. Like it is just such a little petty, like I'm a millionaire and I'm going to flex by, like, making this movie that just, like, takes a giant dump over Disney. And, like, I just think it's awesomely, like, vitriolic in that. And then also, along those same lines, it's, like, a freaking, like, ugly movie to look at. But, like, like a lot of CGI is from the time. But I would argue that, like, it's the only movie that gets better as it gets uglier. Like, as that animation gets, like... <laughs> As that animation gets more and more dated, like, it feels, like, more and more, like, a punk rock, like, take on, like, Disney, like, because Disney's so about, like, ornate animation and, like, technical craft, and so 
the more like uncanny. I mean, the movie opens in an outhouse, right? It, that that is a very appropriate, um, very appropriate aesthetic. Yeah, and like the weird like dead eyes of like Fiona and stuff like that. Like it like increasingly feels like that's part of the satire of Disney is just like making these like weird like doll like automaton creatures like masquerade across the screen in like this like farce of Disney and. I just think, like, even, like, some of the early Pixar movies kind of look dated, but this movie looks dated in this really interesting way that I don't think any other, like, early CGI movie looks like, and it, like, works thematically. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, there's just something messy and gross about it, and not in the gross that you would think. When You know, it wasn't, I'm not, like, Andrew's mom, and I'm, like, deeply offended by all of this. Um, But, like, I think that, that also that just everything that you described also kind of plays into its meme quality because you can like laser focus into those moments of like chaotic imperfection and that's utilized to like share these you know truly um like outlandish reactions to things with like again like fiona's dead eyes or just like shrek's mouth moving in a weird manner um it's just it's it's just like opens up the floodgates to creativity i I respect it but anyway shrek it's great if you want to check it out it's on the um the free nbc streaming service peacock right now so uh speaking of weird streaming services that no one is using speaking speaking of streaming services um all right, well, Michael, I'm going to toss the mic over to you. Sure. So also talking about animation, I watched um, Ponyo um, the other day, uh, which is a – what year did this come out? Uh, a 2008 movie from Studio Ghibli um, directed by, you know, our the one of the main uh, Studio Ghibli boys. Um, uh, Miyazaki. Yeah, Miyazaki. Um and I watched it because this was the only one of his that I hadn't watched. And I didn't do this on purpose as the last movie of his that I hadn't seen yet. But I think probably the reason why it's the last movie of his that I haven't seen is that it's one of the ones that, like, people don't really talk about too much, right? So you've got, like, the big Miyazaki movies like Spirited Away or, like, My Neighbor Totoro or whatever. And this is kind of, like, not one of those. And I, I remember at the time when this coming with this coming out, I think it was after Howl's Moving Castle. Um, and I remember people being kind of like mad because they're like, this is just a kid's movie. You know, after like Miyazaki had spent like maybe like a decade or two making these movies that really straddled that line, you know, or something like Princess Mononoke, which is like definitely not a kid's movie at all. Um, and then I remember hearing like, oh, this movie is so childish. And like, it does have a very young protagonist, um, uh, this little kid named Sasuke, um, who is like a kid who lives in this seaside community and he finds this little weird fish thing, um, in like a tide pool. And it turns out this fish thing, which he like takes and puts in a bucket and like makes a pet out of, um, is actually like the daughter of like a, like a sea wizard. Um, and, yeah, I mean, like like often happens when you find things in tide pools, it turns out that this is a shape-shifting magical creature um, named Ponyo. Um, and uh, Ponyo eventually, like, af- like, adopts the shape of a little girl. Um, and her and Sasuke, like, have kind of, like, little magical adventures while also, like, 
the whole balance of the sea is thrown off because like of like weird like mystical reasons but also because like the the wizard is in like searching for his daughter is having to contend with like all this like pollution in the seaside village and like how's he going to get her back and and things like that and like the result of it is also like the moon starts coming too close to the earth which makes the tide incredibly big which starts like slowly submerging the seaside community until by the end of the movie it's like all underwater except for this one little hill and uh, so it's also like kind of a weirdly apocalyptic movie um, like a, like almost like a flood myth or something where there's like a rebirth through um, the sea kind of retaking um, this community and I think that this movie is way better than I remember hearing people talk about like for one it is oh, yeah. beautiful like it is not so so I guess like you know how like people complain about like the Cal art style or whatever, like that, like, you know, it's all simplified and like straight, you know, squiggly lines. And Are stuff. we talking about like, um, like the, the like cartoon network? Style? Yeah. Well, it's like a thing that people complain about, like having taken over, like kind of the, the default style for like kids programming, you know, where you have like, yeah. Really s- like Steven universe, yeah, Steven kind universe of or like vibe. the new yeah. like, She-Ra people like didn't like, well, some people yes. didn't. So anyway, like, I feel like this has some of those vibes probably with the criticism because compared to something like Mononoke or uh, Spirited Away or something, it's not nearly as textured. You know, you get a lot less, um, you know, the the designs are a lot less detailed for the characters and stuff like that. You know, it, it does feel like a lot more overtly cartoonish, but like it does just some amazing things with it, especially with a movie that's all focused on like water, um, which I think is like, you know, one of the secret like aesthetic calling cards of, Miyazaki, which is like he does like gooey, watery stuff really, really well, and so this movie is like eighty. It's a very, um, it like all the animation in this movie looks very fluid, even if we're not talking about water. Um, and I think that the the you know more recent anime filmmaker who you can kind of see pulling from the aesthetic of this movie would be uh, Masaki Yuasa, who made Night a Short Walk on Girl. Um, and, and everything in his animation is like this constantly morphing, transforming fluid thing um, that's so so far removed from the like ornate, gorgeous, traditional hand-drawn animation of these like more canonical Miyazaki films. But I definitely agree with you that like Miyazaki is kind of... Um, stretching the boundaries of his art a little bit in in Ponyo, just aesthetically speaking. Yeah, and I also feel like that people, I think people mistake, like, one, that art style, and two, the, uh, the, the fact that there's a young, like, very young protagonist for it being, like... He's, like, five Yeah, like, he's right? very young. Like, he's younger than uh, What's-Her-Name in Spirited Away, who I think is up to that point. And, you know, probably the, na- the age of the little, the, the younger sister in... The kids um, in, Totoro. in Totoro, right? Um, or younger brother, whatever. Um, but like, so I think people saw that and thought like, oh, this is a movie just for kids. And I think like, A, there is nothing wrong with like a, a filmmaker making a movie for kids. Like I think like, you know, it is, it is like, you know, a really genuine art form to be able to like express things to, to children. And I think that like a lot of children's animation or not animation, but programming is like really pandering and is often like, yeah. Six. You want them watching like YouTube poops instead? Like you want to watch them like Elsa dancing with Spider-Man on some random uh, algorithm gaming right. YouTube video? Yeah, and like a lot of kids programming is good at like catching kids' attention, but like 
it's really difficult to actually communicate ideas and plots to, to children. So like one, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing, but two, I think this movie is really complex uh, in ways that like people don't talk about. Like it has a lot of that mythical richness of like, you know, classic Miyazaki films where you get like this really interesting and vibrant, like fantasy mythological world under the sea that like intersects the like kind of modernity, like modernizing Japan um, in ways that are like, you know, really interesting interplays of his like kind of pet themes of like, you know, mankind's role within the environment uh, and like mankind's role in corrupting the environment and like what to do with that. And I think that like it has some really rich ideas in it that don't play straightforwardly. I think it is like actually like a really complex, interesting uh, movie and I think that um, I don't know if this is so much the case now but definitely when this was released like I think people who were complaining about this movie got it really wrong and didn't approach it in good faith and uh, if if you are like me and haven't seen it it also spends a it spends a ton of time in a retirement home too which kind of complicates the idea that this is a movie that is only about and for very very young children right because Sasuke's mom works as like a I don't know, like an assistant or something at, a, at that assisted living center. Um, and yeah, so there is something about like aging as well. Like, you know, you have these characters who are at the beginning of the movie, um, you know, physically impaired in some way so that like their mobility is, is lacking, you know, they're in wheelchairs or walkers or something. And as the movie goes on, like in the magic starts kind of taking over, like with this flood, their, their like physical abilities change and shift in ways that I think is a really interesting interplay with like, the other ideas of like rebirth and transformation in the movie by like, you know, the, the flood, like kind of, uh, you know, bringing nature into the town again. Um, I don't know. I, I really like this a lot. Um, the, the, I watched the, the Blu-ray that, uh, G kids released, um, not too long ago, I think. Uh, and it was really good. Well, I think it's streaming for, which I, I kind of like as a resource for those who have not watched any Ghibli movies, but it's streaming with the rest of the ones available on HBO Max. So. Yeah, I haven't seen it. Check it out. Ponyo's watch great. Ponyo. It, watch Ponyo. Watch Ponyo. Watch this CalArts style uh, anime it's, film. It's, much, it's a much better uh, movie that you could interpret about climate change than Shoto Shinkai's. Oh my God. Weathering yes. with you. Which just. <laughs> Absolutely. Because nothing says, you know, oh, that dang climate change, but uh, I'm in love, so. What are you going to do? This movie All is right. also about love, too, so you want a better theme with also love. There you go. It's there. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back talking 2009's Coraline after this. Hello, Cinematary. This is Zach, your host, and I'm going to use this midpoint in this week's episode to let you know a little bit about what's happening on both the website and the podcast. So first off... Uh, I know for, for a very long time we asked you not to give us any money. Well, things have changed. <laughs> we want that money. I'm just kidding. We just want like $5 a month for the rest of your life. But 
we're doing a Patreon, and I promise this is all in good fun. Uh, Patreon.com slash Cinematary. I'm sure you've heard us mention it at the end of the episode. We are doing this in order to pay for our writing that is happening on the website. We have a wonderful breadth of writers who are all giving a lot of time and effort to come up with reviews and share their thoughts on the website. And so we wanted to just give back to them in that way. And so that is why we created our Patreon page. So again, for $5 a month, you can get exclusive content from the staff. Uh, Right now we have our hit series, Film Theory and Chill, which takes a piece of film theory each month and then deconstructs it Uh, in a way that makes it a little bit more accessible. And then we end that episode usually with just us rambling about whatever is on our mind at that period of time. It's, uh, it's, it's for some people, I guess, (laughs) but, uh, you can find that on patreon.com slash cinematary. Please consider, you know, making that note donation each month just to, uh, help the help show these writers your appreciation for what they do. Another easy way to kind of keep up with what's happening on Cinematary is signing up for our free newsletter. So if you missed an episode, if you weren't paying attention to social media and you missed maybe a review or something or a video essay or something that we posted, this is an easy way to keep up with all of that. So each Sunday we send out a note. It goes straight to your inbox. It gives you the latest podcast episodes, you know, what's happening on the Patreon page and the last two reviews that are on Cinematary.com. This is a great way to keep up with what's happening and it's a nice way if you forget to go, oh, hey, I'm not, you know, just chilling out on a Sunday. I'm having some coffee, doing Sunday things. Here, I'm going to check out what uh, what Andrew wrote about something or what uh, Nathan wrote about something. Just, you know, we got we got that stuff going. So uh, you can find that on the website, cinematary.com. You can sign up for the newsletter. Again, it's free. And finally, the easiest way to support this show is to go on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a rating and review. You know, this is just how the algorithms work. I know every show asks you to do this, but it, honestly, if, if you could take, a, you know, 30 seconds to a minute and do this, it would greatly, you know, help us. I mean, this helps us just as much as, you know, signing up for the Patreon uh, or letting people know on social media that you listen to Cinematary and you enjoy it. Uh, all of that stuff is, is very helpful, so give us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast and, you know, share it on social media. Let people know that Cinematary is around. So again, uh, consider donating to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Cinematary. Sign up for the free newsletter and then give us a rating and review on your podcaster app. Well, that is way too much of me talking. You're about to hear more of me talking, so I apologize in advance, but thank you for listening and let's get back to the show. two of episode 323 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be concluding our Horror for Kids series with 2009's Coraline. Uh, written and directed by Henry Selleck and based off the book of the same name by Neil Gaiman, the film stars Dakota Fanning, Terry Hatcher, Jennifer Saunders, Don French, and Ian McShane. 
While exploring her new home, a girl named Coraline discovers a secret door behind which lies an alternate world that closely mirrors her own, but in many ways is better. She rejoices in her discovery until other mother and the rest of her parallel family try to keep her there forever. Coraline must use all of her resources and bravery to make it back to her own family and life. Director Henry Selleck met author Neil Gaiman just as Gaiman was finishing the novel, and given that Gaiman was a fan of Selleck's The Nightmare Before Christmas, he invited him to make a possible film adaptation, as Selleck uh, thought a direct adaptation would lead to, quote, maybe a 47-minute movie. His screenplay had some expansions, such as the creation of the character YB. When looking for a design away from that of most animation, Selleck discovered the work of Japanese illustrator Tadahiro Usugi and invited him to become the concept artist. One of Usugi's uh, biggest influences was on the color palette, which was muted in reality and more colorful in the other world, similar to the film The Wizard of Oz. Usugi declared that, quote, at the beginning, it was supposed to be a small project over a few weeks to simply create characters. However, I ended up working on the project for over a year, eventually designing sets and backgrounds on top of drawing the basic images for the story to be built upon. Completing the film involved more than 500 people over four years, with principal photography taking 18 months on its own. Lead animator Travis Knight noted that when the makers of Coraline were looking for a financier for the film, it was difficult to convince people that the movie could find an audience. Knight recalled the reactions from potential producers, quote, It's got a female protagonist, so clearly boys will not go see a movie like this. But it's really scary, <laughs> so girls are not going to be into that. And it's in stop motion. Damn, Nobody no wants to see stop motion. <laughs> Uh, Gaiman said that the production company that ultimately signed on uh, Focus Features, a subsidiary of Universal Pictures, was, quote, convinced that the only people who would go to see it were essentially small children. But he was pleased to see another company involved (laughs) in the movie's making, Leica, market the film to, quote, other groups like Neil Gaiman fans. The mention of that obvious group to target got some laughs uh, when he he said it because he said in animation fans and just people who are, like, cool, weird shits. Um, to diff- differentiate between the two mother characters, Terry Hatcher gave herself different postures when recording her dialogue. When voicing mother, she slouched so that her voice could sound more tired. And for other mother, the actor stood bolt upright so the character would sound stiff and mannered. And allegedly there is like recording of her do- doing all of this while doing the voiceover work. Um, Selick originally conceived the film to be a live-action movie because when he approached Bill Mechanic to produce it, he was bound by an output deal with Disney to not do animated films. Two big reasons Selick pushed for (laughs) stop-motion animation over live-action was that he felt a talking cat was too much of a gimmick in that context and the film itself might end up being too scary. Once it was decided... Who could believe a talking cat? I know. It, it would never win. Um, once it was decided to animate the film, uh, Selleck fought for stop motion. While com- computer animated films were becoming more popular and profitable at the time, the perennial success of The Nightmare Before Christmas helped him show its potential. Stop motion would also help differentiate the film from other animated movies out there. Which, I was looking back in that year at the Oscars, um, it was the year that Up won. It was a great year. But you year. also had oh Fantastic gosh. Mr. Fox. You had The Secret of Kells. You had. Yeah. Um, was that the Wallace and Gromit movie year too, or was that before? No. Okay. No Wallace and Gromit in this one. Yeah, but Dang. I was just thinking, just like Coraline, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and Secret of Kells are two, like, or three, like, 
some of the great animated movies the last you know couple you know couple decades so decade like, yeah 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 um in 2009 the new york times said there are many scenes and images in Coraline that are likely to scare children this is not a warning but rather recommendation since the cultivation of fright can be one of the great pleasures of youthful movie going as long as it doesn't go too far toward violence or mortal dread a film that elicits a tingle of unease <laughs> or a tremor of spookiness can be a tonic to sensibilities dulled by wholesome man Shut the fuck up, A.O. Scott. Coraline <laughs> lingers in an atmosphere that is creepy, wonderfully strange, and full of feeling. Time Magazine in 2009 said, The chilly visual vocabulary, along with a narrative that too often detours into ingenuous irrelevancies, makes Coraline an object to be admired, but not embraced. And Roger Ebert in 2009 Oof. said, Yikes. The director of Coraline has suggested it is for brave children of any age. That's putting it mildly. This is nightmare fodder for children, <laughs> however brave, under a certain age. I know kids are exposed to all sorts of horror, horror films via video, but Coraline is disturbing. Not for gory images, but for the story it tells. That's rare in itself. Lots of movies are good at severing limbs, but few at telling tales that can grab us down inside where it's dark and scary. So, on that note, yeah, it's much better than the New York Times babble. Um, yeah, the, like, parent, parental guide. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on that note, let's jump into Coraline. Um, I mentioned last week, Andrew, that you're the uh, the Coraline scholar, but um, let's go ahead and just kind of start with, what, what what's your history with this movie? Because I know that you've presented it for, you've written about it, you've presented it to groups, like, this is a thing for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have quite a history with this movie. It's one of the more formative movies for me. Um, it's it's one that I watched really early on in my kind of like um, awakening as a cinephile, I guess you could say. And it's one that I've kind of come back to at various um, like pivotal points um, in, in that journey. Um, so I'm going to give like a probably too long like history of, of me in this film. Uh, I saw it in theaters in 2009 with my younger sister. I was 17 at the time. She was 13. Um, and I hadn't seen a whole lot of movies at this time. I mean, I had seen the movies that you see growing up as a kid and as a teenager, but like I wasn't actively seeking out movies or thinking about them seriously or anything. But uh, watching Coraline in the theater was one of those rare experiences where I knew I had kind of seen something special and I had, I had thought about it a lot in the, you know, in, in the subsequent weeks and months. Um, fast forward to 2012, um, my wife won a costume contest on Halloween and she got given a Blu-ray of the film as a prize. Uh, we rewatched it together and I was blown away for a second time because I had kind of, um, gotten into movies in, in the three years since and watching it again with fresh eyes and with that new perspective, I was kind of able to appreciate like, uh, so much more about the craft of the movie, just how like incredibly it's put together. Together. Um, and at the time, I was in a children's literature class at UT where the novel Coraline was on the syllabus, and I could do a final project about anything I wanted to do that was related to the class. And so I did my final project on Coraline, um, both the novel and the film. Um, and I, it, the essay I wrote was way longer than it was supposed to be. I may have went over like the maximum word count as I am wont to do. Um, and I got the most like extreme compliment 
I've ever received as a student, like to this day. I re- I vividly remember this. My my TA, the TA that graded my paper, handed it to me and made eye contact and said, "Your essay was phenomenal." And I was just like held on to that moment. Like it was so it was so nice to hear her say that. Um, I still have my essay. I reread it before the podcast. I still am very proud of it. Um, I probably should like turn it into a video essay one of these days. That would be fun. Um, then in 2014, the same year we started this podcast, um, I was part of UT Cinema Club. I hosted a screening and discussion of this movie, and I did a ton more research about it, like more than I'd already done for my children's lit paper. Um, I read Freud's The Uncanny, which is very relevant to this. I read a bunch of scholarship about like psychoanalysis in this movie, um, and I put together this super elaborate presentation that I sadly cannot find anymore. It's lost in cyberspace somewhere. Um, and the discussion ended up being like way longer than the movie itself. I remember friends of mine in the audience like texting me during the talk, like begging me to wrap it up because we needed to go eat pizza. Everyone was very hungry. Um, so <laughs> this story is also a history of me like being uh, too long winded and talking about this movie. Um, and and since then. Uh, when people ask me my, what my favorite film is, I often say Coraline because uh, it's something that everybody knows. It's pretty much universally beloved. It's not really one of the obvious picks for like best movie of all time or anything like that. Um, the An image from Coraline of her kind of uh, crawling through that blue and pink tunnel is still my letterboxed avatar today. Um, but I actually haven't rewatched this movie since 2016 when Kubo came out and I rewatched all the Leica films and I was really worried to be honest that if when I revisit it after so many years that I just wouldn't like it um, or just wouldn't like it as much as I did before because I, I know it so well I've maybe burnt myself out on this movie my tastes have changed so much in the last four or five years as a, as a film fan and I just thought that this might not work for me I was kind of horrified about the prospect of revisiting it but you know as soon as the little stop motion camera cranes down into the pink palace and we're, we're watching Coraline explore this big musty house I'm just like I'm right back in it um, it's it's so so good I absolutely love this movie I cannot get enough of it we can talk about whatever you guys want to talk about um, you know you, you know t- you guys can take it from here and I will just I will just follow your lead okay um, so like mice you're following is- us down the tunnel um, <laughs> exactly you know. <laughs> uh i i don't know if i i i'll just say i don't nearly have as extensive of a history with this one but i think i do remember seeing it in 2009 i don't think it made too much of an impression on me i think it was one though that like you i came back to it as i was um i don't really like i didn't really like the description you use like your burgeoning cinephilia or whatever it was it sounded <laughs> yeah that's uncomfortable <laughs> it's a little uncomfortable but i mean i was in the same place where it was like this one and um a number of ghibli films like spirited away kind of came back up and were you know i was re-examining um but this one also really just kind of stuck out as being something you know pretty special and i had i had already you know loved watching nightmare before christmas the other henry Selleck movie uh prior to that so you know i kind of had that and that kind of lives in its own little realm from Coraline. but um this has always been a movie that i've i've really really loved and had affection for um michael what about you um yeah i mean i was liked it too um i had read the book 
in like either middle school or early high school, like just because I saw it in my library, it looked cool. Um, and I had some friends who had also read the book when this came out, which by that time I was a senior in high school. And so we were excited, um, for this movie kind of as fans of the book. Um, and I went, went and saw it with them and that was fun. And I was also like, I've always been a huge fan of Coraline with the boys. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was some girls. Uh, it was some, it was some oh, girls okay. actually, uh, from my uh, journalism class that I took as a senior in high school. And we all kind of mutually realized like, Hey, we all like this book Coraline and it's about to come out. And I think one of them wrote a review for the school newspaper, but, um, but I was also like a huge fan of like stop motion. I usually tried to make a point of seeing stop motion movies when they came out. Like I remember chicken run coming out and then that Wallace and Gromit, like Curse of the Were Rabbit movie. And I had like, watched a lot of like Ardman animation like growing up like as a young child or like Gumby and that sort of stuff and so like I was always you know stop motion features are so few and far between that you know it kind of always stands out when one comes out and I had not actually watched The Nightmare Before Christmas but I had seen James and the Giant Peach a lot because my grandparents had that um which is another Henry Selleck movie that's like half stop motion um and so I kind of knew his name from that um and I was kind of interested in that. Um, I also remember, I also have a vivid memory of like getting to the box office and me and my friends had to decide were we going to see it in 3D or not. Um, and my decision at the time, or our decision at the time was no 3D gives us headaches and we don't really like it that much and it costs more money. So we're going to see it in 2D. And like ever since I have regretted it because it is like commonly cited as like one of the best like uses of 3D in like, you know, kind of the recent like whatever fad or wave or you know innovations of 3d and so i've always kind of wondered what it was like in 3d because i um missed it in 3d that time but um i've seen it a couple times since not a ton but i mean i really like it um and i i think it's a great movie uh i remember at the time you know like fans of books kind of are are want to do i was like mildly annoyed by some of the changes that i made from the book which aren't significant but like i don't I didn't at the time like the character of YB and I am kind of skeptical about his in inclusion in the movie this time too. Although I really like the like silent, like uh, hunchback YB in, uh, uh, in oh, the other, the other, in YB. the other place, but like him is like the, the talking character. I guess I'm like Coraline, right? I just don't like him talking, but, um, <laughs> uh, but like, so at the time I remember having some sort of like kind of book nerd, like quibbles with it, but I still really liked it then. And I still, I really like it now. And I, love 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 the the animation craft and i think like Leica gets a lot of props for being stop motion but i think one of the things that they're really good at more so than specifically stop motion is the interplay of computer effects with stop motion in a way that looks really seamless and this movie i was noticing this time around has some really good computer effects that mix really well with the um stop motion um and i think like in contrast you have something like uh the last you know, kind of gasp of like Walt Disney, like cell animation, like Treasure Planet or something like that has a lot of computer effects and it is really um, obvious and ugly looking. Um, whereas this movie, you know, you would think it would be even harder to integrate computer effects with something as like textural and, um, you know, kind of lived in looking as like a stop motion film. Um, but it, it really works like when they have like the weird like effects with um, like where the places start to change color and turn grayscale or like things just disappear from the backgrounds like that all looks really good and is cohesive with the rest of the movie's aesthetic in a way that is really interesting I think and Leica has like since done a lot with that like in Kubo there's a lot of digital effects that 
uh, look really cool and don't feel like a violation of the movie's generally stop motion aesthetic. And um, so like this time around, I, I did appreciate a lot more of the technical stuff than I remember liking before. Um, but I, I really like it. It's, it's a really good movie. Well, I was reading in the notes also that um, like in terms of the technical stuff, this like they used a lot of 3D printing. So it was heralded for like the various facial effects that the characters could have um just because they had they were like they 3d printed all of this stuff i mean they won like an like they were accommodated by the academy for um a lot of the technical work for this movie oh i was just going to comment on the the cgi uh usage in the movie michael that you mentioned um i think it works especially well in Coraline. i don't know um how much of the stuff we see in the first half of the movie is CG, but you really start to notice it in the second half of the movie after um, we've kind of already established the the Beldum's world or the the other house as this constructed space that gets to be that can kind of be manipulated based on the whims of of the antagonist, um, and so. The idea that like the CGI, the, the 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 use of CGI can kind of just like make things pop in and out of existence or or kind of like um, drift away um, makes makes a lot more sense, um, especially in with the the real world of this movie being so like handmade and solid looking. Well, the first thing I kind of wanted to talk about, kind of in an allusion to. Um to ebert's review where he's talking about that this is a a frightening movie because it's not like gory but it's just kind of it just sinks in and and initiates that dark space i mean that that kind of seems in touch with a what we uh talked a little bit about in our in our patreon film theory and chill this month but um but this 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 uh concept of the uncanny as you mentioned uh andrew you, you included it in your essay but uh, I think that that's kind of what Ebert's alluding to in his review of like, there's something frightening about this movie, not because of its, its gore or the way it, you know, like it has like these jump scares, but more, it just has this leering, um, you know, uncomfortableness that kind of like it, it latches on to your insecurities and your anxieties in the way that it, you know, the same way it does to Coraline. Yeah. I, I don't remember enough about, the the freud essay the uncanny to really be able to get into the nitty-gritty of it i remember it being a lot more nuanced than i assumed it would be uh it, more than just uncanny being something that is familiar but just slightly off um and i wish i still had my presentation so i could look it back at some of the specific quotes that i they pulled in to talk about it um but zach i i know that I think that you brought in some stuff about the uncanny in your video essay about Leica and German expressionism. And I also know on the podcast or the, the film theory and chill we did this past week, um, Nathan talked about the translation of the word uncanny, not just meaning strange, but in some way related to like parents. Do you remember what the translation was? I don't remember off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah. But no, it, I I definitely used um, I used a lot of uh, the kind of the use of the uncanny in Coraline for for my German expressionism essay because I think the movie I I used really in correlation with it was um, I think the student of Prague I haven't watched that essay in a while I probably should rewatch that and, and refamiliarize myself but um, the student of Prague is good because it, it the, a lot of German expressionist films they like to play with this idea of the uncanny and the way that they saw the uncanny was just something 
like 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 you described it's something familiar but it's also something that seems um you know like uh, like it's not tangible it's not it's just unattainable like in the student of Prague, you have this this doppelganger character who's constantly causing all of these issues for um the the character this you know the student character in this film but he's like in he's unable to to uh react to it because when he finally does react to it it just kills everything um and so you know a lot of that a lot of the uncanny a lot of the stuff that kind of frightens you in Coraline is that you know there's just something until she like goes like full like spider lady you know late in the film there's just something um unnerving and off about the other mother character and you know that's why I included that note about Terry Hatcher doing like a physical performance to it because that's this that's something that I really noticed on this rewatch was just how how good her performance is in this movie as the two mother characters because you really don't even think of her as the as the, like the actual mother um but like the distinction between the mother character and the other mother character is just so um, she's able to capture like the uncanny through her vocal. I mean, performance. the obvious visual way in which she's made uncanny is the buttons to her eyes, which we haven't really mentioned yet, but it's like a very central image in the movie that's horrifying. Um, like you said, Terry Hatcher's um, like vocal intonation shifts in such a subtle way that like you can tell this is a different character the second you meet her. Um, and then also there's some interesting like um, little details to the animation where like she's always kind of um, I don't know what the right word for this is sort of like tapping her fingers impatiently on any sort of surface um, that she's st- sitting in front of like she's um, wait waiting to strike or, or hungry for a meal or something like that. Um, that that sets you off on edge just a little bit. Um, I and uh, you know going back to the uncanny um, and and Freud's conception of it again. I don't remember all the nuances to it, but with so many things related to Freud, like he's very hung up with uh, on like parental anxieties and anxieties related to uh, the home and our our familiar domestic spaces. Um, and when I I remember doing um, like psychoanalytic research on the movie and seeing what critics have written had written about uh, both the film and the the book and a lot of the interpretations kind of surprised me um, in how focused they were on the concept of divorce um, they, they interpreted Coraline as being about um, having a second family and the weirdness of jumping back and forth between these two worlds where you have a different mom and dad in each place um, and the ways in which your new mother um, might um, go out of her way to try and impress you or entice you to love her um, with, you know, tasty treats or gifts or experiences that you don't get to have when you're in your other home or your first home. Um, and the way in which, like, there's a there's a childhood anxiety related to that. Like, you feel like you're kind of being led into a trap of some kind. Like, you can't really trust this person. Why are they, why are they trying so hard to... Uh, you know, win me over, lure, like lure me into their web. <laughs> and that's not a thing that I really thought about um, when I wrote my original essay about this movie or, or you know, any of the other times that I've watched it. But I, I do think that reading uh, works. Uh, and, I, and I do think it, you know, it, it meshes with the idea of like an, an uncanny familial experience. 
I think this movie also does really interesting things with like iterative experiences. So there's like a lot of repetition in this movie of like parallel scenes or whatever. Um, and that well, it's a it's it's also sort of a fairy tale. Right. It's a fable, you know. Like things things happen in threes. Uh, she has to. She has. Um, is it that she has? She only has two neighbors. She has uh, Bobinski on, on the the top floor, and she has Spink Enforceable in the basement. Oh, and then she has YB too. So she has like these three neighbors that she ta- interacts with, and then she has to collect the three eyes and do three challenges. Uh, and there's the three ghosts, which it, it all feels very fa- fairy tale-ish. Yeah, um, and also, like, for example, like, you know, she goes into the other world, um, you know, the other house, like, several times, of course, in the movie. And each time, like, there's, like, subtly different things. So, like, the first time is, like, you know, the basic time where they kind of introduce, like, what the deal is. There's other parents and there's other neighbors that are cooler and, you know, stuff like that. And then the next time she comes, like she basically sees the same things, but they're all subtly different, right? So, like, the player piano gets um, a little bit different each time. The the fa- the other father becomes droopier and, like, more, like, like floppy ragdollish each time. Um, he becomes, like, a pumpkin. He, he looks right, like a pumpkin. And the cat, interact, she yeah. interacts with the cat each time she goes in, but each time that interaction with the cat is just, like, a little bit different, and I think that that works really well in the way that like you, like you said fairy tales work but also in the way of like just showing like the transitioning between two spaces one of the things that's un, unsettling about transitioning between two spaces is the gaps between when you're there so like if you're at one house you find out like how the other house has changed while you're gone rather than it being a continuous experience you have to you kind of jump into like you know minor unsettling details like this guy looks a little bit different than I remembered him looking or this thing that I was used to happening the last time is still happening, but it feels different this time it's happening. And I think that the movie is like really interested in that um, as well. Um, And I I, I think that's really cool. Well, I I think that's just the terrifyingness of it is that it's something that you can't necessarily control. You know, it's not like you you can control the, uh, you know, the patterns of, of things changing to a degree and so like that inability to to you know to like physically go i'm gonna you know fix this so it won't do this like you just don't have that power and that powerlessness kind of feeds the fear going back to the concept of jumping between two spaces um one of the big themes of my children's literature class where i read the novel was the idea of an other world. Um, This is like a concept that exists in a lot of children's literature. Um, And it's kind of like a hero's journey thing, too, where you have an ordinary character in an ordinary world, and they get, you know, whisked away to some sort of extraordinary magical world. Uh, So like in Harry Potter, this is Hogwarts. In The Wizard of Oz, this is Oz. In Narnia, this is Narnia. Um, And then, of course, there's Alice in Wonderland, who uh, goes to Wonderland. And um, my essay about this movie kind of used Alice in Wonderland wonderland as a as a jumping off point um because i remember being really fascinated by something my professor said about alice in wonderland about it being um um, a novel that is in many ways like concerned with food and concerned with how food affects the body um you know one of the first things that happens to alice whenever she goes into wonderland is she she sees the cake that says eat me and the and the potion that says drink me and one of them makes her really really big one of them makes her really really small and there's also like the tea party and the tarts and there's just like all sorts of treats and and 
types of food that have different magical properties in Wonderland. And of course, Alice is um, a, a young girl, a very, very young girl, kind of like the age of um, the character we were talking about in Ponyo, where your body is so malleable and constantly morphing all the time. And there's something about Alice in Wonderland that's like tapping into that weird disorienting experience of like constantly like growing bigger and longer and and you know it's just a strange like almost body horror type of story and and I I focused on Coraline in that respect too um in the novel there's a lot of talk about food um and a lot of anxiety that Coraline has about food and about other people's bodies as she kind of describes other people's bodies in very grotesque ways um and then in the novel or in the movie we don't get that narration and there's a lot less focus on food but we see so much of it and it does play so much of a role in the narrative um you know the other mother is always kind of tempting Coraline with food um spink and forcible have these like this taffy that they use um, both to kind of treat Coraline and also it has this like magical properties of telling the future and, and they give her the seeing stones from the taffy. Um, Bobinski offers her a beat um, and has like the cheese that gets delivered to his door. Um, and uh, there's, there's just so much about like food and like body anxiety in this movie that never really gets fully expressed but the way that the bodies are constructed in this like weird grotesque expressionistic stop motion space is so unnerving it, it almost feels like we are looking at adult bodies from the weird warped perspective of a pre-adolescent who like doesn't really understand why bodies why adult bodies look so exaggerated um you have Spink and Forcible who like when they were much younger were, you know, it, these, um, you know, like sexy stage performers uh, where one of them has like a really big bust and one of them has a really big butt. And then as as elderly women, they're kind of decrepit and and illustrated in this like very grotesque and horrifying way. Um, and even the like small characters like um, Coraline sees this this woman um, in like the the clothing shop where she goes shopping for a uniform um, who's just like in these really ridiculous proportions um, and and then we have the other mother the beldam who by the end of the movie kind of like stretches and grows into like this tall human skeleton where you can like see her ribs. And you can see her ribs before she kind of goes full spider mode too. Um, so, so there's there's something in this movie that's um, you know it's not directly about this. The text of the movie isn't really about um, food and bodies and things like that. But in the the images that we're looking at, um, it's constantly kind of like asking you or inviting you to be. Or to like wonder about the relationship between food and bodies and kind of like feel um, Coraline's potential anxiety as a pre-adolescent about like experiencing her body changing and things like that. Yeah, and, and I feel like it also, you know, you you mentioned it, but I think I think that the the choice to do it in stop motion is kind of what is what like makes that more effective. You know, it's funny that um, Henry Selleck was, you know, there was a moment where it was going to be live action, which I just can't really imagine. 
Um, but because like the stop motion, like you say, the, the distortedness of the figures, it, it, it does have like that expressionist quality where it's like, let's just show um, just how absurd the you know rather than rather than dig into we'll, we'll, we'll find the way to find the absurdity just like in what these people believe or what these people are doing in various ways but let's also just look at like how absurd and uh strange these people like are constructed <laughs> and so um, have you guys seen any of the other henry selick stop motion features like monkey bone or uh james and the giant peach or stuff like that i've seen james and the giant peach um i remember not liking it a whole lot um it's but i don't i haven't weird. seen monkey bone it's a super weird movie but like andrew how you were talking about how like bodies going undergoing changes and stuff like that like both of those movies are uh, like basically in text like about like bodily changes um you know like and they do that by switching between live action and stop motion so like for example in in monkey bone you have like the stop motion monkey that is like at first a real cartoon character in like a tv who like emerges into the real world but brendan fraser's mind gets trapped inside the monkey um and then the monkey's brain gets trapped inside like the live action brendan fraser and so there's like an overlap (laughs) and like a weird bizarre like crossover with like their bodies have been like kind of hijacked by each other and like cartoon is live action live action is cartoon and then like james and the giant peach like begins and ends like in live action but like all the stuff on the peach happens in stop motion and there's some really weird like body contortion stuff because all the characters are bugs except for james uh, who still becomes stop motion and kind of like uh, is kind of creeped out by the fact that like he becomes a cartoon uh, and specifically a stop motion cartoon. So I, I feel like this is like, I mean, an auteurist reading might like, you know, draw connections between that, like how all of his movies, or at least the ones that I've seen, like are navigating two worlds. And this is the only one that I know of besides Nightmare Before Christmas, which maybe doesn't have the same theme but this is Coraline is the only one I know of that well, like it does have the two worlds it has the Halloween uh, world and the Christmas world uh, that's true uh, and and the and the uncanny grotesquerie that ensues yeah, and, both, and there's like a, a trans transgressive element between like navigating those two worlds um so yeah. anyway, I don't know. And creating gross like Christmas presents for children right. and things like that. But anyways, go I, ahead. I guess I was gonna say like Coraline <laughs> is one where it conceives of both of those worlds as stop motion rather than conceiving of one as live action. Um, compared to like Monkey Bone and, and James and the Giant Peach. And I think that that's like an interesting um thing that that like theme gets transposed like uh aesthetically that way as well. Mm-hmm. I think that yeah, I mean that's that's a really interesting like auteurist reading. Henry Selick as like the um, the animated Brandon or not Brandon David Cronenberg <laughs> or something like that. Um, I do think there's something interesting happening with like specifically bodies and gender in Coraline, and I don't I don't know if I have a firm conclusion on what exactly it is, but there's just like so many gender signifiers in this movie. Um, Coraline herself is pretty androgynous. Um, she. She's a tomboy. She has no romantic interest in somebody like YB. Um, but there's um, there's there's just like a, a lot of um, 
strange kind of gendered things happening around her, like going to see Spink and Forcible's show in the other world and them kind of being very sexually exaggerated. There are boobs in this movie, by the way. We haven't mentioned that. It's like there are so many moments where I'm like, how did this get made? How did someone sign off on this and put it in every theater in America? But that's one example of that. Um, And then like they're being watched by an audience of dogs, which is kind of implying something about like the male gaze experiencing these sort of, uh, you know, sexually explicit images on a stage or on a screen. Um, She has dogs uh, that turn into like vampire bats later on. True. Uh, she has blue hair and lives in a pink house, and she she has to crawl through this tunnel uh, that is kind of like uh, fluctuating between blue and pink as well. Um, it, and in the novel, by the way, when she climbs back through the tunnel the, the last time, it describes it as being like wet and hairy and like pulsating, <laughs> like she like it's some sort of uh, it's some sort of uh, you know symbolic journey into adolescence or some or pubescence. Um, but like this movie is just I think kind of semiotically fascinating. Like everything in it feels kind of vaguely tantalizingly symbolic you know we got we got food everywhere there's this emphasis on eyes and tunnels and bodies and dolls and houses and mothers and fathers there's also a weird thing happening in here with necks that i've not totally figured out like every character has a different shaped neck and there's a thing where like yb and the cats do where yb and the cat does where they will often like uh, cock their head to the side and, and look at Coraline and, and she she does that as well to kind of get a different look at things um, so yeah I mean there's, there's just still so many things that I don't quite know what to do with it's not like um, a, a movie with a, a super clear um, like direction that it's pointing you in with all this all this like like symbolically loaded stuff but it's just in there and, and like uh, inviting you to pick it apart, which I really, I, that's a thing that I enjoy. I think that's also like another parallel to fairy tales. Cause I think like our most enduring fairy tales have that sort of like really symbolically flexible, um, you know, uh, a quality to them where there's a really clear, uh, narrative, but what that narrative means is just so slippery. You know, you look at, um, you know, like a, a, a story like, you know, Bluebeard or, you know, um, Red Riding Hood Blue Red Riding Hood or something yeah. like that. And like all the different versions, like even before you get to kind of like, you know, 20, 20th century reinterpretations. But if you go back to like the, you know, kind of like a folklorists who first recorded those stories and each one kind of has like variations on like basically the similar narrative structure, but like, but, you know, vastly different like interpretations of like what the meanings of those stories uh, are just by like, you know, just kind of slipping along like a spectrum of like symbolism within those stories. And I think like Coraline really feels like it's of that tradition. And I think, I know that that's like Neil Gaiman himself, like uh, going back to like the novel, like, I mean, that's kind of like a pet uh, theme of his is like this idea of like, you know, folklore and like, uh, like fairy tales and the intersection of that with like, you know, modern spaces. Um, and, but I think like, you know, unlike a lot of like, movies that try to be like fantasy for kids or whatever this is one that like kind of insists upon not explaining like what it means which i think is really fascinating in a like kind of classical way and freud really liked fairy tales and this seems like a fairy tale 
like almost tailor made for Freud to like have oh a have gosh. a fit over. Like diving, <laughs> going to um, and like uh, to to bring another like literary parallel into it, this movie is also littered with Shakespeare references that I don't totally understand either. Like, well, um, I can kind of answer this... that to a degree, I guess. So they, okay. they they set it in Ashland, Oregon, which I guess has a prominent shakespeare festival there oh, okay um, yeah because yeah, they go to town to to buy Coraline clothes and there's a there's like actors uh, like off-duty actors like chasing each other around and quoting henry v and things like that um but my favorite my favorite piece or i guess just to catalog the rest of them um one one fun one is when she goes to Spink and Forcible's house, they have these posters of like Shakespearean productions that they were in when they were were young and beautiful. But they the titles have been changed to be become like these um, pervy puns. Uh, like Julius Caesar becomes Julius sees her uh, and King Lear becomes King <laughs> Lear L E E R. Um, and then in the in the other world, whenever uh, they put on their like big spectacular show for her, they quote this long, um, this long speech from Hamlet, um, which like has no bearing on the plot directly whatsoever. It's just kind of um, really evocative and and like high energy and and like some is like kind of transportive. Takes the scene into this like really elevated space. Um, the quote, by the way, which is great, I just want to quote it. It is, What a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. I feel like you could write a whole essay just kind of like picking apart the resonances of different lines in that speech to things in Coraline, you know, talking about a man, like humans being like a thing that was made. Uh, it's a piece of work. Uh, and then also something about um, the relationship between humans and, and animals is, is kind of a thing in this movie too. You have like bugs and cats and things like that. Um, mice as well. Yeah. Bobinski becomes a suit full of rats at the end of this movie. Oh my gosh, um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's just like an infinitely interesting movie, I think. And also like genuinely horrifying. Every time I talk to a student or something about Coraline, um, they always talk to me about how like genuinely it freaks them out, um, which I think is is rare with these horror for kids movies. Also, I was going to say that's a perfect kind of like last point to hit on is that like looking at this series as a whole, um, there really hasn't been too many that I've been like, this is, you know, genuinely frightened, frightening, but Coraline is, is a, is a very frightening movie. And so, I mean, uh, how, how is that for you all? Like in terms of just this movie, um, kind of as a part of the series, where does it, where does it rank? And like, does it frighten you? I was just gonna say of all the movies, I think it is the one that's most intentionally trying to scare people. Like, I think something like the wizard of Oz or, or, um, like hocus pocus, like, those are not the scares are not like its primary focus and it's kind of become by proxy about scares because of like some aesthetic decisions made in in like the wizard of oz for example but like this movie and the book are definitely like they definitely feel like these are like horror movies horror book you know yes like i was saying about zombie island last week like 
Um, a lot of the media we consume around Halloween has the aesthetics of horror. You see spider webs and witches and ghosts and things like that. But when we're making stuff for kids, it's often um, meant to be kind of soft and, and comfy and, and not actually threatening. But there is a great deal of threat in Coraline. I mean, going back to the question of how did this get made, um, we've, we've kind of skipped over the point that like the central conflict of this movie is that this girl's going to get needles stabbed through her eyes and she wants to find a way to not get needles stabbed through her eyes. So yeah, like genuinely uncomfortable, like genuinely like viscerally bodily threatening. Um, and you know, it's like audition for kids. It's audition for kids. That's right. Um, it, it will come as no surprise from me that this is like, obviously the, the crown jewel of, of, horror movies for kids it is just like unequivocally the best one i will say that like um return to oz is maybe as scary as this movie but it's scary in a much different way like i think that movie is like surreal and scary because it is like incomprehensibly like the 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 aesthetic decisions are like dream logic and this movie isn't dream logic this movie is like I mean, there's, like, dream elements to it, but, like, this movie is kind of straightforward in its objectives and, um, like, like plot, whatever's happening. And Return to Oz is scary because it's, like, unpredictably, like, grotesque. And this movie is the other way around where it's so considered that you kind of understand, like, the amount of understanding you have makes it horrifying. Like, you understand that she's going to have a needle put through her eyeball, and that is what's scary, not that, like, I have no idea what this image means, which is kind of what the Return to Oz is doing. Any other final thoughts on Coraline before we wrap up? Score's really good. Um, Bruno Calais' score with his, like, French children's choir <laughs> is, like, eerie and beautiful. Um, yeah. I love it. Yeah, there's, like, a... I don't know what the, like, subgenre of it is, but, like, you know, I, I feel like, you know, Danny Elfman fits into, like, the kind of mu- score music that this movie's going for. There's, like, when you go to, like, macabre, like, stop-motion films, like, it's got to have a score that kind of sounds like this or, like, something that Danny Elfman would have done or something like that. And I, I don't really know, like, what the, like, thing is that that is called, but it, it is, like, a very specific thing that I think is evoked several times in, like, film history, like, really memorably. Another uh, piece of trivia that I'm actually kind of surprised didn't come up in the fact sheet um, is that the original um, soundtrack of this movie was going to be entirely composed by They Might Be Giants, um, who they do can they contribute one song in the uh, making up a song about Coraline scene with the first uh, scene with the other father, uh, but they like composed I think a whole score or a whole set of songs for this movie that ended up getting thrown out for Br- Bruno Calais' score, um, one of which ended up on an album of theirs the song is called careful what you pack it's a pretty good song you should go listen to it if you're interested um but i'm really glad they ended up throwing that out like i think that they might be giants would have totally ruined the vibe this movie is going for and bruno calais kind of nailed yeah, it they're not quite as like nocturnal like that would it would have been like it would take the yeah. movie toward camp i guess um maybe yes it would not be scary anymore for sure it would not be considered for this series. No. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I think I, I want to say it's if you've not seen Coraline, it's pretty available. I think it's streaming on Hulu at the moment. So watch yeah, go Coraline. Watch Cor- be, so good. Yeah, go watch Coraline. Um, 
All right, well, we're gonna that that will wrap up this episode. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com/cinematary, on Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary, and on Letterbox at letterbox.com/cinematary, where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Uh, I mentioned at the top, but patreon.com/cinematary. Thank you so much to our our patrons: Cam, Chad Newsom, Christine Daughtry, Cindy Roberts, Harry Eskin, Hell Yeah Small World, Joe Jordan, Maggie, Ron Hayes, The Kittiest of Kittens, Titus Arthur. Tyler Chandler and Whitney Rio Ross, thank you so much for your patronage. Next week, we're going to be kicking off a new series. Yeah. More horror for kids. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, Hocus Pocus 2, you know, it's all, we're going to just dig into all those. The new witches. No, movie. we're going to be. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, we're going to be doing another director series, of, as you probably remember before this one, we did uh, Agnes Varda, and now. We are going to take a look at the uh, the the late Iranian director Abbas Kiarostami. Um, we're going to go a little we're going to go a little crazy. I'll be, I'll be honest with the uh, first episode. We're going to have to figure out it's the it's these three schmoes again on it, but um, <laughs> the schmoes are us guys. But we're going to watch the Coker trilogy. So all three films we're going to try to cover in part two. We're going to have to have like a super. Hey, I have I have great advice for listeners who want to keep up with that. Um, so that episode's coming out on Friday, right? Next Friday. We're going to be recording it probably Wednesday or Thursday. I am going to watch the Coker trilogy on election night instead of watching election coverage. I am just going to be in Abbas Kiarostami's headspace for like five plus hours. That's where we should all and be. And I think that that's probably the better place yeah, to be. Yeah, we should all be there constantly. Um, so we got the Coker trilogy, then we have Close Up, which I feel like is probably one of his more well-known, uh, or at least one that people usually go to. Then we'll be watching 10, and then we're going to, uh, conclude with Certified Copy, which is, um, one of his later, one of his later films. You know, this one was a tough one, too, because, I mean, I would, there's, like, Taste of Cherry, there's, you know, countless other Abbas Kiarostami films. Like Someone in Love. I kind of wanted to do 24 Frames, but... A uh, certified copy is just too good not to do. Yeah, certified copy is certified great. Oh my god! <laughs> I Don't mean, let Michael they're all episode. certified great. <laughs> yeah. Um. So so check out. We'll have the we'll have the listing on um, cinematary.com again. But that that'll be our next series. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye.